Time for another great podcast from ICRT. But first, a message from one of our outstanding partners. Don't forget, more information and fun on the ICRT app or at icrt.com.tw. ICRT, listen with the world. Now open. Texas Roadhouse is bringing Taichung residents its delicious, juicy steaks and barbecue ribs. Located on Shizhong Road, Texas Roadhouse is looking forward to serving up legendary food, legendary service, and legendary fun. 美味的手工鮮切牛排,10月5日登陸台中,德州鮮切牛排台中店,位在西屯區市政路581-6號,傳奇性的美式風味,等你來嘗鮮。We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicola Smith, who writes for Time and The Guardian. Good evening. And on the telephone by Jie Tingye, the co-founder of Cataglan Media. Good to be back. Tonight, we discuss a proposed new model for cross-strait ties, a Taiwanese national's attendance at the Communist Party of China's National Congress, plans to improve migrant fishermen's rights, an announcement by Maurice Zhang that he will be retiring next year, and good news for workers here in Taiwan, as long hours are reportedly a declining trend. But we'll begin with publication of a book by Washington-based think tank Project 2049 Institute Research Fellow Ian Easton, in which he concisely lays out Beijing's plans for an invasion of Taiwan. The book made headline news here on Thursday of this week, with newspapers making great play of the year 2020, being touted as when China could begin to seriously consider invading the island. It led to questions in the legislative UN being asked of Defence Minister Feng Shui-Kuan. The presidential office, though, did not comment on the book, and spokesman Sidney Lin said as much in as few words, but he added that his office also has nothing to say about the validity of the sources mentioned in the publication. Now I spoke with Shepherd Media's Taiwan defence correspondent Wendell Minnick about how the book lays out China's invasion plans. Good evening, Wendell. Good evening, Gavin. Okay, so the report, which is based on a book by Ian Easton, titled The Chinese Invasion Threat, led to headlines, of course, on Thursday morning in Taiwan, over, well, concern that China will invade Taiwan by 2020. So what's the crux of the book say? Well, this is the first tactical, and and not just strategic, but tactical look at China's capability, looking at the PLA documentation that's been written and published in China. Uh, so you get units, and we get amphibious capabilities. We get beaches. We get weather conditions. Uh, it's an excellent study on PLA con- uh, capabilities uh, for invading Taiwan. All right, and apparently it talks about a sort of a Normandy beach-style invasion where up to 400,000 troops could hit the shores of Taiwan. Yeah, uh, it looks like Taoyuan uh, coastline is the number one beach for, for China to invade because of the airport and the distance from Taipei to Ta- Taoyuan is closer than it was for Taichung, which was the orig- original beach landing many right, years ago. And of course the book goes on about how it would, um, it was the, the, any, any such assault would begin with missile attacks on Taiwan's strategic sites, along with naval and air blockades, and of course the Normandy-style amphibious landing would come later. Yeah, but the, the air bombing uh, by missiles and fighter jets would start about six days before the actual amphibious landings. 
and then the air blockade would stop the theoretically the air and sea blockade would stop America per se coming to Taiwan's aid. There's some of that in there. They're not, you know, it does talk about American uh, capabilities, but for the most part, this is a PLA. Uh, study, not a, an American response study. Right, of course, the presidential office in Taipei on Wednesday basically dis- didn't dismiss it per se, but they basically came out and said, we, no- we have no comment about the publication and we have nothing to say about the viability of the sources mentioned in the book. So what do you think of Ian Easton's sources? Well, they're mostly PLA sources, uh, documentation uh, in Chinese written by uh, strategists and and tactical people there. This is not made up in Washington think tanks or or Taiwan think tanks. This is mostly the PLA itself talking about how to invade Taiwan. And do you think his 2020 deadline... Obviously, it's not the first time people have talked about 2020 because, of course, Xi Jinping has reportedly made making Taiwan part of the motherland, say, for many years now. Well, the 2020 is capabilities. Uh, China will have the capability to invade Taiwan by 2020. Um, But there's only two months a year that China can do this, and that's April and October. So pretty much, people. Any 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 invasion, there would be the other America and Taiwan and other countries with satellites would be able to pick up on this. Well, yeah, thirty thirty days uh, notice is is expected. Uh, Sixty days uh, ambiguous warning. Uh, there won't be uh, any way for China to hide the invasion. Right, of course, and of course that time frame is because of the Taiwan Strait, I believe, not being very nice to shipping. Right. Uh, the nickname for the Taiwan Strait is the Black Ditch, and uh, according to superstition, um, there are a lot of ghost stories about about the Black Ditch and how it's haunted, and uh, demons, uh, you know, coming up from the ocean. Uh, the waves are very high most of the year. The weather is very bad. So it is very difficult for amphibious landing. Right. But do you think the Taiwan government should be shocked by this book, should pay attention to it? Or do you think the Ministry of Defence here in Taiwan is already aware of a lot of the things published in this book? I'm not sure who would be aware of it in the Ministry of Defence, but I think that uh, Ian, Ian Easton did come to Taiwan recently and did interview a lot of the ministry officials. So they're aware of that he is writing a book, and uh, it did come out. I don't think... Anyone in Taiwan has a copy of the book except myself. Um, but those in, in Washington uh, obviously got a copy the other day. Right. I mean, do you think it will shake things up in Washington under the uh, Trump administration and its Taiwan policy? I don't, I don't know. I, I do think that uh, American politics is, is moving away from uh, Taiwan's interests, not towards Taiwan's interests. Um, domestic problems for the most part. And of course the book comes out as both the US House and the US Senate are talking about differing versions of a 2018 defence bill, which of course includes Taiwan provisions. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a possibility of, of using uh, port facilities here for different things, um, but it's not real solid as, as of yet. Right, I mean, do you see that happening? The US actually coming here for port calls? Uh, I don't think they have the husbandry skills here in Kaohsiung for U.S. naval needs. I still think that they can get those elsewhere. Right. And obviously you've read Ian Easton's book. I mean, what did you take away from it? 
Uh, just the matter of detail, uh, just an incredible amount of uh, d- d- tactical detail, which units would be involved in an invasion, uh, right down to the beaches, the weather conditions. It's an amazing work. There's no question about it. Right. He worked on it for a long time, I believe. Yeah, many years. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it is based on PLA sources. It's not based on... Um, Washington, D.C. think tank uh, speculation. Right. I mean, do you think that China would invade Taiwan by 2020? No, I don't think 2020 is, is, is doable right now, but I think it's, it, that's their capability goal. Uh, after 2020, they can do it with, with success. Right. And do you think people, both the public and the defence forces here in Taiwan, should be concerned about after 2020? Well, you know, I think everyone should be concerned. Uh, living under uh, Beijing regime uh, would be very difficult for Taiwan citizenry. It, it would change the uh, personality of the country, obviously. Uh, I myself, uh, you know, I don't see much of a future for Taiwan um, under those conditions. Right, but what would Beijing get if it did invade Taiwan militarily? Well, they get a uh, direct line of sight into the Pacific, which is now blocked by Taiwan Right. So obviously they wouldn't invade. Obviously they'd invade Taiwan to bring it into the mainland as they want to do. But of course, the other policy is they want to line of sight into the Pacific. Because obviously if they did invade, they'd end up with a lot of millions of very angry people. Uh, of course. Uh, but uh, I don't think Ian uh, talks much about a guerrilla effort here on the island. Um, that would be very difficult for the Taiwanese. Right. Why would that be? Well, the mountain conditions and the lack of supplies uh, for the domestic forces uh, are, are, these are, are the main conditions that make it difficult. You can't resupply them very easily here, and the Americans won't, I don't believe, will do that. He doesn't say that in the book, but I think that the PLA won't have much trouble after they invade and take Taipei itself. And that was me in conversation with Shepherd Media's Taiwan defense correspondent, Wendell Minnick. And moving on, and President Tsai Ing-wen this week reiterated a proposal that Taipei and Beijing create a so-called new model to handle cross-strait relations. And in an interview with Central News Agency reporters, Tsai said that her administration is hoping that both sides can begin to think about the matter after the Chinese Communist Party's 19th National Congress, which wraps up later this month. Tsai also said that while the two sides have long dealt with ties based on an established model and guidelines, a changing international situation means that those model and guidelines should now be re-examined. And of course, this comes ahead of next Tuesday's Double Ten National Day celebrations here in Taiwan, when Tsai is expected to outline her administration's domestic and international policies once again. And of course, China is likely to be mentioned. Now, of course, Tsai last year touted her new four no's for cross-strait relations at the Double Ten event, those being no changes in its pledges, no changes in goodwill, no bowing to pressure and no reversion of the old path of confrontation. So, Jieting, what can you see Tsai Ing-wen coming up with this double 10-day in her speech and this so-called new model way to handle cross-strait ties? Is it a new model and is it any good? So I think to remember um, her talking about a new model basically as opposed to the old model, which is the 92 consensus that uh, the KMT and Ma Ying-jeou basically followed. I don't know what kind of new model she's able to come up with um, that will satisfy China. Um, there has already been op-eds um, in, for example, the China Review that says 
basically, if there's no 92 consensus, if there's no adherence to the one China principle, then there's nothing more to talk about. I think on Tsai Ing-wen's part, um, I think it's commendable that she keeps pushing um, this issue of, you know, let's come up with something new, let's come up with something new. Um, but I don't see the possibility of China sort of coming around and saying, yeah, you know what, let's you know, think of something else. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that completely. I mean, this new model, what is it exactly? I'd like to see some actual concrete proposals as to what she means by a new model. It's very vague. Um, and yeah, she she has to... It is commendable that she, she's trying um, to make overtures towards China. She has to do that. She's the president of Taiwan. She's a politician. She has to kind of find some way through the, the impasse. But I also agree that I just don't see China budging, really. I mean, I, I don't think that they are going to accept anything else they have very set views on Taiwan and and as try as as she might I I just don't see that they're going to to change that position in any way I totally agree and I think what she's really saying by let's come up with a new model is really in other words telling China okay look um, you know it's maybe it's your turn to rethink this one China principle right Um, which you know I don't think anybody is expecting China to do anytime soon um, you know, sort of in addition to that, you know, I think there's over the years, there's been so many different types of proposals coming from the, you know, the Taiwan side, right? Whether it's from DPP or KMT or um, all you know, political leaders of all spectrums in Taiwan have, you know, tried their hand at coming up with some sort of, you know, fudge, shall we say, right? To say, you know, maybe there is some sort of way that's something in the middle, some sort of very cleverly worded diplomatic language or um, some sort of very, um, you know, if you play with the words just right, um, you know, maybe you can get something that Taiwan, both Taipei and Beijing could sort of accept. Um, You know, you've had, uh, you know, Ke Wenzhe himself, Taipei mayor, saying something about, um, you know, you know, maybe we need a new new consensus. Um, You know, we're all part of the same family and, um, you know, in the past, you've had you know, confederacy, some sort of a federal system, some sort of a union system, some sort of, you know, all all sorts of you know proposals. But on the Chinese side, it's pretty simple, right? You have to accept that Taiwan is part of China. Otherwise, there's nothing to talk about. Um, and so, you know, I've always thought it's a little bit like Taiwan is trying to negotiate against itself, right? So you're, you know, you're at you're at the market and you're haggling with the, with the vendor, right? And the, basically the vendor is just saying, no, 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 no. The price is always going to be the same. And, and on the Taiwan side, we just keep you know, naming different prices, lowering the price. That's not very good negotiating tactics, in my opinion. So you're not expecting Tsai Ing-wen to come out with anything, any groundbreaking comments about cross-strait ties in her double 10-day speech? Um, I honestly don't um and it's not because i don't trust um that she's working on it it's just more i can't at least as far as i can see i don't think there's anything more to do really um like what else can be done i i just can't imagine i just can't imagine that I guess she should simply come with a, a, a tape recorder or some sort of um, audio device where she can just press the button and repeat last year's speech well, essentially, um, I, I think, again, it's more important that she calls on Beijing and put the onus on Beijing to, um, you know, to, to do something with this, right, versus, you know, like coming up with some yet another, 
you know, sort of cleverly worded, you know, sort of mechanism or cleverly worded, you know, theory or framework. You know, I, I, I really don't don't see anything that's going to be brown, groundbreaking in the sense that it'll change China's mind or get China to reconsider its stance. Um, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I think domestically she has to do something. That's probably um, the most advantageous uh, side to her politically of of trying to come up with something. China's clearly not going to shift. You know, as you say, their view is that Taiwan is part of China, and I I just don't see that ever changing. But for President Tsai, she does have to also placate her domestic audience, and she has to be seen to be doing something. And it has harmed her in the polls that that um, cross strait relations have not been good. So I think she just has to keep playing to her domestic audience and and trying to to be seen to be constructive and coming up with a solution. Right, from there we shall move on. But we won't move very far because we have more cross-strait issues in the first part of this week's show. And this week saw the Mainland Affairs Council rather critical of a China-based Taiwanese woman who will apparently be attending the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. There we go. And apparently she's already acquired Chinese citizenship, but Lu Li An's attendance at the upcoming CPC Congress has been questioned for legal reasons. Now, she was born in Kaohsiung in 1968 she moved to Shanghai in 1997 with her husband, where they both currently work for the Fudan University. Now, Lu is also president of the Shanghai Taiwan Compatriots Friendship Association and is the first Taiwanese national to have been born in Taiwan and elected to attend the CPC National Congress. Now, news of Lu's attending the Congress came a day before Overseas Community Affairs Council Minister Wu Xinxing told a legislative hearing that Beijing is now urging overseas political political parties to meet with Taiwanese political parties to promote China's unification agenda. So firstly, who will Liu be speaking for at the CPC Congress? And does Beijing really believe she speaks for Taiwan? And secondly, Beijing appears to be stepping up its unification campaign. But is it likely to have any effect on the already low support that unification doesn't really enjoy here in Taiwan? Well, I, I may be really out of place here, but it seems to be a little bit of a storm in a teacup, surely. It's one woman who um, is attending the Congress. I mean, it's clear that she doesn't represent Taiwan and any attempts to make her look like that would, would surely just be laughed at. I mean, you know, she works at a university. Um, also, she's she's Chinese now. She's a Chinese citizen, and the question is whether she still she gave up her Taiwanese citizenship. But if she has, then you know it's 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 within her rights to to attend. And surely, dialogue is a good thing as well. I mean, she's doing it openly. Um, I think maybe there's more of a case to be looking at how China's trying to influence Taiwanese people covertly. I mean, is anyone looking at, at um, the business community and, and kind of attempts to sway the business community? I mean, this is very open and transparent that she's attending this Congress. I just don't see really um, where the dangers are here. Yeah, I don't. I think for this particular case of this one uh, woman, um, again, she had PRC citizenship. Um, it is within her rights. Um, I believe it is illegal to have both ROC and PRC citizenship at the same time. So, assumably, her ROC citizenship has been revoked, right? 
Apparently, that's um, the question. But, Nobody knows. Apparently, immigration immigration authorities are now looking into whether she's revoked her ROC citizenship. But in any case, I think it it does hit a nerve, right? So we're talking about people who are from Taiwan, who grew up in Taiwan, um, doing, you know, living or, you know, conducting business in China and having these people sort of becoming um, more, you know, sort of integrated within the Chinese political system. Um, I really don't see right now how that in itself is a problem, except to say um, if you do have people who are very influential within the Taiwanese communities in China or even have the ear of you know, powerful or wealthy people in Taiwan to be able to influence those decisions, right? So I think there's, um, it, it does hit a nerve. Um, but then again, you know, you have, uh, you know, big business tycoons um, pretty much in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party, right? And, you know, that's just, that, that's just what happens. And, and people, you know, know that, yeah, that's a part of, you know, the landscape now, we just have to deal with it, right? So... I think it is an interesting question to look at how China is trying to forge links with political um, parties or political characters in in Taiwan and how it's trying to influence at the grassroots level. I mean, it certainly seems like it's playing a long game um, and it's being, being very tactical about it. Um, you know, I was quite surprised on, on Sunday to see lots of Chinese flags kind of flying around Taipei Main Station when the, the Chinese Unification Party was marching. Um, I mean, it's also, but that's also democracy, isn't it? I mean, how do you address that issue? I can understand the paranoia. I can understand why people, you know, as you say, it, it touches a nerve when, when China's trying to influence, um, gain political influence in Taiwan. But people at the same time have their own, they have their own minds. They, it's a democracy that they live in. They're, they're free to express their views and, and to have their own opinions. So, you know, how do you address that? Right, and you have um, even more uh, seemingly innocuous things, right? So, for example, inviting community-level leaders like Li Zhang, right, or um, NGO leaders or, um, you know, school principals, elementary school delegations to visit China. And, you know, there, or, you know, for example, Chinese investors are, you know, showing a genuine interest in um you know, some of the companies or startups that people are doing in Taiwan and investing in them, right? So it, it's, it's extremely difficult to say, you know, where do you draw the line and say, okay, you know, we, we, we welcome these cultural exchanges, but um, at the same time, we also understand that a lot of these cultural exchanges are politically motivated, right? Or have some sort of a ulterior motive, right? So, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a question that a lot of people, uh, that's a question that I would see, I would like to see more discussion about. Um, I think there's, um, you know, a, a lot of our attention is being drawn to these sort of, um, you know, to be honest, clowns, right, who are waving PRC flags and these ex-gangsters that are sort of the face of the Chinese unification front in Taiwan these days. But, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that's going on that, you know, may or may not have ulterior motives, but, you know, how do we, where do we draw the line, essentially? Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, it seems to to be that China has a very wide-ranging strategy on a lot of fronts. I mean, you mentioned startups, but if you look at how 
um, you know, China is also luring Taiwanese youth and talent over to the mainland. I mean, that seems to be part of a much wider strategy of, of basically, I guess, winning hearts and minds in Taiwan, trying to influence in, in different ways, as well as, as having the stick. There's also the carrot of, you know, come come to the mainland, we'll, we'll give you money for your startup. And I think one of the ways for Taiwan to tackle that is just to make the conditions better for young people to work here. Um, you know, rather than concentrating on what is China doing, um, you know, it's trying to influence our young people, maybe just concentrate on what Taiwan can do better, um, you know, how to improve wages for young people, how to improve career prospects, make it a better place to live for Taiwanese youth. Right, and we have to take a short break there, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll begin the second half of the show with Taiwan's adoption of the International Labour Organization's Fishing Convention. The move is part of government efforts to improve the conditions for migrant fishermen working at sea on Taiwan-registered fishing boats. Now, the announcement was made during this week's 24th World Congress of the Apostleship of the Sea, which is taking place in Kaohsiung. Now, the Catholic charity supports seafarers worldwide and acts to improve working conditions and to ensure non treatment of all mariners regardless of their religious denomination. Its World Congress takes place every five years and although Taiwan is not a member of the International Labour Organization, the Fisheries Agency says it will request that all Taiwan-based fishing companies adhere to the convention which stipulates 10 hours of rest in any 24-hour period, sets the minimum age at 16 years for working at sea and provides guidelines on other matters including meals and allotted time off to return home home. And of course, this comes only weeks after a dozen people from several fishing companies in Kaohsiung were in fact arrested on charges of exploitation of 81 foreign fishermen for making them work long hours for low wages and holding them captive. And of course, Nicola, you've covered this type of horrible working environment before, haven't you? Yes, many times. Um, I mean, it's, it's great that Taiwan's signing up to this, it's pledging to... Um, to improve uh, fishermen's rights. The key is always in implementation, isn't it? I mean, you can sign up to as many conventions as you want. It's just whether you throw resources at actually implementing it and making it work. And, and if there have been, um, you know, these arrests that you mentioned, that's a good sign that the authorities are taking it seriously. Um, and it, it, the thing with um, fishermen and rights at sea is it's very difficult to have an overview of what's actually happening. Um, you know, so many bad things happen at sea, basically. You know, it's, fishing boats are out for days on end. Nobody really knows what's happening on board. I mean, how do you actually enforce the law um, adequately? But it, it certainly seems that Taiwan is kind of taking the, some good steps towards doing that. Um, and I think it's uh, notable that um, it's another instance where Taiwan is sort of you know, adopting an international standard or a standard agreed by an international organization that it is actually not part of, right? Um, and um, I mean that that strategy. On on the one hand, of course, you know, you want to bring Taiwan up to the standards that everybody else is held, you know, held to, and it's a very good. But it's also it's also very good, um, sort of a. In, 
PR, if you will, for for Taiwan. Um, you know, to say, well, you know, we would like to be a responsible member of the community, um, even though we're not, we don't have to, but we will choose to do this. But I mean, do you, do you, do you so, think do you think things will change, or it's just more words? I think it could go either way. Um, you know, as uh, as Nicola said, it's uh, on the on the open seas, right? It's very hard to you know sort of see what everybody's doing. It's hard to keep track of what's happening. Um, you know, but I think it does send a message that um, you know Taiwan is taking something like this uh, more seriously. So I think it's a good sign overall. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, a lot of these conventions can be just words and people sign up to them and, and sometimes don't do anything about them. But um, it's better than doing nothing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's good to set that standard and to pledge to commit to that standard. So you're not just sitting back and doing nothing. Um, it'd be good to come back to it in a year's time and see what has changed and, and whether um, fishermen do have more rights. Um it's it's just so hard to kind of completely clean up the industry, isn't it? Because there's 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 often like you know criminality involved. There's brokers who rip these guys off, who kind of um, make them indebted. Um, there's so many factors to it, but it certainly sounds like some good first steps are being made. Right. Now, one of Taiwan's most respected business leaders made a big announcement this week with Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Chairman Morris Jung saying that he will retire in June of next year. Now, I spoke with Bloomberg Gadfly tech columnist Tim Culpin about Jung and his legacy. Good evening, Tim. Gavin, good evening. So, TSMC's Morris Jung finally announced his retirement this week. We thought it would never happen. I mean, he's been in the gig for... 30 years, and uh, he talked often about how he's fit and healthy and uh, has got many more years left in him, but, uh, you know, he is 86, so, uh, you know, it's time for him to get a bit of time for himself, spend some time with his family and catch up on some bridge playing, so that's what he's doing. Right, of course, he's been a very busy man since 1987 when he actually founded TSMC. That's right. In fact, he uh, he was brought to Taiwan. People say he was brought back to Taiwan. He's actually not born in Taiwan. He's actually born in China, near Shanghai. And uh, as a teenager, he went to the U.S. and uh, worked at various semiconductor companies after he graduated from MIT. Uh, Texas Instruments is the most famous of the companies that he worked at. And then he was invited to come back to Taiwan, or sorry, I should say come to Taiwan, uh, when he was already in his 50s to help them set up, uh, you know, the kind of industrial heartland of Taiwan. And uh, and from there, he, he started up TSMC. So that's really his life story there. Because right, a lot of people wouldn't realize he was actually born in China because it was TSMC is often touted as the Taiwan company. Oh, yeah. Look, it's a totally Taiwanese company, Taiwan uh, Money. Their early investor was actually Philips. They uh, they wanted to get a foreign uh, semiconductor company to come in on, on board with them, and they, they scouted around, talked to various companies. I think Intel was one of the companies they spoke to. And finally, they went with uh, with Philips, which was big in semiconductors back in the day. And so Philips was an early investor in TSMC, uh, along with the government and, and various others. And then years later, they listed on the Taiwan Stock Exchange and, and then New York, and, and uh, the stock price has gone up since. Right. And do you think TSMC could have become TSMC as we know it today without Jung? You can't split the two. It's, it's like, you know, um, Apple without Steve Jobs uh, or Amazon without Jeff Bezos. 
uh, it's not just uh, you know kind of the force majeure which is is Morris Chung, but he really set up a structure for the company very much in an American mold. People often look at it, their corporate governance and the way they do things is very American, very American thinking, and so it really came from the top. I mean, he, there's a reason why he's called the Godfather of Taiwan's chip industry, and that's and that's a compliment, Gavin. You know, that's not an insult. People respect him. Every word that he says, every utterance, every forecast, every opinion is hung uh, on very closely because he's got such knowledge and such uh, you know understanding of the industry that people really want to know what he thinks and what he says. Right, obviously, what do you think the semiconductor industry here in Taiwan is going to be like without Maurice Jung sort of being the leader in the field? I think it'd be fine. Uh, he's he's set up a succession plan and he's leaving it to two very capable people. Uh, they've had for a few years uh, two co-CEOs, one called Mark Liu, another one called C.C. Wei, who both are brilliant engineers and brilliant managers. And so Morris Jung has said that uh, Mark Liu would be chairman, replacing uh, himself, and C.C. Wei would take over the role of CEO. And and I believe they're both very, very capable. And there's been such a long succession process, quite a few years, that both of those gentlemen have really learnt the ropes and uh, and really know how to run the business. They've got good relationships with the customers, good relationships with suppliers. They know the industry. They know the technology. So I don't think there'll be a big problem with Morris Jung stepping aside. And of course, his job is being taken over by two people, which just goes to show what a busy man he was. He was. Well, he stepped away from the uh, the CEO role a few years ago. So he only held the chairmanship role uh, for the last four years. But for most of the time, he was, he had both roles. But one thing to, to note is that when he stepped down as CEO to take on only the chairmanship, he did point out that there's no such thing as a non-executive chairman. Uh, the point being that he's very much going to be involved. We often see in many companies the chairman or chairwoman is, is a bit of a silent person. They're not really in an executive role. They don't do day-to-day things. But during his chairmanship, he was very much involved day-to-day. He'd uh, appear often at the quarterly investor conferences. And so him stepping aside, even though he was only the chairman, it does mean that he's stepping aside uh, totally and won't be involved. I mean, do you think Jung stepping down could mean that Leo and Wei take a sort of step back a bit and look about look at TSMC's investments and their plants and maybe move them to other countries. I don't see that happening. There's a really good reason why they're staying in Taiwan, and that is because they've got the whole support network. They've got the engineers. uh, They've got the supplier base. And there's not a lot of good reason to go elsewhere because it's not a labor cost-intensive industry. It's all about the capital cost. It's all about the equipment. They spend $10 billion a year on equipment. And so there's not a lot of benefit in being, for example, in a a low-wage country or or necessarily any closer to clients or suppliers. it's better to be closer to suppliers than anywhere else. They are doing some expansion in China because they need to be. There's a lot of customers there. Uh, but in terms of the overall base, um, Zhang himself has said very clearly that he expects to see more uh, expansion in Taiwan versus anywhere else. And I don't imagine that Mark Liu and C.C. Wei will change that philosophy. Because right, after, after Foxconn or Honheis, is known here in Taiwan, talked about opening the big plant in Wisconsin, there was immediate talk that TSMC could move to America. Yeah, I just don't see it happening. Um, there's not a lot of benefit for them moving to America, um, TSMC, that is. You've got to have a lot of engineers. They're really, you know, smart engineers who really can run a factory and have to be there, you know, troubleshooting day in, day out. 
there's a lot of cost issues in doing that. They've got three major centers here in Taiwan, one in the north in Xinjiang, and then central in Taichung, and then Tainan. And, you know, with, with Gaoche, with a high-speed rail, you can be from one place to another within just a, a couple of hours. And so any troubleshooting or setting up or any kind of tweaking that they need to do from factory to factory, they can do that all here in Taiwan quite easily. If you set up a factory overseas, you know, as far away as the United States, look, they could pull it off. They could do it if there was really good incentives. But there's no real benefit. There's not a lot of benefit for them doing that. Right. And if you had to sort of sum up Maurice Jung's leadership style and some of his greatest things he's ever done for TSMC, what would they be? I think his dedication to uh, to kind of quality, not just quality of the product, which is, you know, semiconductor manufacturing and, and the engineering, but also corporate governance. It's really seen as being a company with incredibly good corporate governance, with very good uh, decision-making processes in place, security processes in place. It's, it's one reason why investors have trusted the company year after year after year through good and bad, through thick and thin. And so really, he set up this structure of a company in Taiwan that, uh, that is a model for a lot of other companies to follow. And of course, talking of corporate governance, we've got the new um, Financial Supervisory Commission chairman, Wellington Gu, has come in and questioned a lot of the ways of corporate governance in companies here in Taiwan. Well, there's a lot of issues going on, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, we talk about TSMC, they're really the benchmark in Taiwan, but there's all sorts of issues in corporate governance in Taiwan, you know, right through Asia, to be honest, where families own shares, they own them outright, they own them in secret, they own them through, uh, you know, offshore units or, or offshore companies. And so that's one of the issues of corporate governance. And then there's the issue of board members, are they doing what they should, should be doing? Uh, are they looking after the interests of shareholders? There's insider trading, which pops up from time to time. Taiwan's getting better in corporate governance, but there's a long way to go. And I think that, uh, that any more pressure that can be put on uh, you know, regulators or, or companies to improve their corporate governance would be better for Taiwan overall, because that really helps inspire, uh, inspire investor confidence in Taiwan. And I think that's really important. Right. Of course, of course Maurice Zhang also inspired young people because he was photographed many times taking the MRT to work. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, a lot of people, um, if you ask them who, who their, their hero would be, you know, in, in Western countries with, you know, sports stars, for example. But, you know, in, in Taiwan, it's like, you know, Morris Jung, Terry Guo as well from Foxconn and, and some others. But really, he is he's the godfather for a reason. People look up to him, they respect him, and they would really like to emulate him. And that was me speaking with Bloomberg Gadfly tech columnist Tim Colpin about Morris Jung who announced his retirement this week. There you go, lucky man. He's 86, though, so I guess he's allowed to retire. Anyway, before we go, eh, the government says that data shows that very long work hours here in Taiwan are becoming a thing of the past. Now, a survey found that the number of employees in Taiwan who work 50 or more hours a week has dropped below 10% of the total, and that's a fourth consecutive time that the decrease has been recorded. Now, data from a 2016 survey showed that only 8% of employees in Taiwan worked very long hours, or 50 hours or more a week, as very long hours are described as, and that figure was a drop of 2.2 percentage points from 2015, and the lowest level since 2006. The decline is being attributed primarily to the introduction of the 40-hour work week in January of 2016.
Are you working less, Nicola? Well, I'm not governed by Taiwanese law, I'm afraid. <laughs> and I'm a freelance journalist, so I don't know. I think I'm probably working more than I, I did before. But um, I, it's, a, you know, it's a great thing that, um, that the number of people working very long hours is coming down. I mean, it's, it's just not worth it, is it? You know, you work, you work, you work, and then you die. And then you kind of wonder what it was all about. But um, <laughs> sorry, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? That was a bit grim, wasn't it, really? <laughs> but, you know, you know what? If you look at it, what is the point of working these crazy long hours? Um, what does it get you? Maybe some more money, some more status. But actually, there's a lot of life to be enjoyed that is not work. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good trend. So, Jieting, are your employees working less? I don't think so. I would like to make them work harder, as a matter of fact. But no, I, you know, in, in all seriousness, um, I think there is a benefit um, to the economy, right? And also you know, sort of a more indirect impact, but to the quality of democracy and to the quality of politics in Taiwan, right? So if you have everybody working so hard, um, you know, people are not going out and buying things or consuming or spending money. Um, if you have people working really hard, they're not going to have the extra capacity to understand, you know, the issues and political issues and, you know, who the candidates are or who the, you know, what they're voting for, right? And so I think... Um, having some sort of regulation on working conditions and working hours um, is a good thing for Taiwan. I think. Well, so I think. That's, uh, sorry, what would be interesting to see is is just uh, some kind of analysis of why people have been working these really long hours. I mean, is it because um, of companies putting pressure on them, or is it self-imposed, or is it society, or is it family pressures? I mean, what? Why has this culture of working very long hours? Um, sprung up um, and you know to what extent government laws are kind of at least protecting people from um, abuse by companies or the firms that, that they work for Anyway we won't work anymore because we're going to leave now and that's the end of Taiwan this week and I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith Thank you for having me and on the telephone by Jia Tingye It's Friday night if you're listening to this right now, please get out of the office and go do something fun and spend money and support economy. There you go. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.